This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt, and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for, or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Sadia Tijani, who is currently a part one architectural assistant in a practice in Manchester, UK. Sadia studied for her part one degree at the Birmingham School of Architecture whilst working part time and graduated in 2020 during the pandemic. Now, Sadia will return to study her MArch in September 2023. However, Sadia has a passion for architecture and communicates her daily archie life on TikTok using videos to engage with her audience in a fun and engaging way. And firstly, welcome to the first series, sorry, the second series of the Brock Architect podcast. Mm -hmm. And I just want to ask you, how are you today? Thank you for the introduction. It was great. Um, And yeah, I'm very well. Um, How are you? I'm very well. It's uh, lovely to be with you on on a Saturday morning in rainy England. (laughs) I know, so gloomy, Manchester, eh? Yeah, we're not not too far away from each other, actually. Um, Yeah, I'm in South Manchester. What? Where else are you? I'm in um, I'm in Rosendale, which is just over the border of Greater Manchester. So, okay. Yeah. A little bit further. Yeah. It's nice, nice. Well, maybe we can just start with, um, please, you know, just tell me about your background and why did you want to study architecture? Yeah. So, in terms of background, when I was younger, I actually always wanted to be a singer dancer and actress but I was always way too shy so by the time I got to high school I was doing singing lessons but whenever I would have to speak in public I would completely shut down so then in college I studied photography and I think that sparked my creative juices and one of the modules was actually me photographing architecture buildings 
So I noticed when I was setting up compositions and sort of studying the facades of buildings, I kind of began to develop quite a keen interest. After college, I thought, you know what, I enjoy buildings. I enjoy looking at them, viewing them, sort of understanding the history behind them, especially in Manchester. I always wondered why is there so much red brick when I would go out and take photographs? And that kind of led me to sort of look at and technology. And I think that passion and history into architecture is what got me started. So I opted to do that at university. Also, there was always that comfortability with picking architecture as a degree because my granddad was an architect back in Ghana. And that's something that my parents had always mentioned. But obviously, at the, that time, I wanted to be a singer. But to me, picking my university degree. I thought, you know what, if he was able to do it, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll be able to. So yeah, that's how I got into it. Oh, I love that. I love that. You know, I'm first in my family to do architecture. So it's it's lovely to see that, you know, you thought, well, yeah, my grandfather can do it. I, I could definitely do it. Yeah. Did you know what the pay was like before studying architecture? And when did you find out, you know, the pay essentially is on par with a retail worker? Yeah, it's quite, I don't know if you saw the graduates earning similar to McDonald's workers when they first graduate. I don't know, it was quite um, quite sad, really, because you think about how much you work at university, something that is comparable to just getting a little job at McDonald's. Yeah, I was quite shocked at that. But no, I didn't know the pay. Obviously, I said my granddad was an architect, but he was an architect back in Ghana. He earned pretty well. And so my mum and dad always encouraged it and said, you know, he 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 did very well for himself. He sent all his kids to private school. So you are going to make tons and tons of money. But that was back in Ghana. Actually, it doesn't always apply country to country. Yeah, like the cost of living in comparison to other developing countries isn't the same. 19,000 in Ghana and people will be super impressed, but 19,000 in the UK, based on cost of living, it's not really the same. So when I did graduate, I first my first job role, I was an architectural assistant slash sort of office manager. So I was on 23k a year. Part ones around me who were working full-time and they were on 18k a year and that was the base salary that was what all part ones were paid and that's when I began to realize wow so even though I'm doing account management and some invoices and things I'm on 23 but there's my people I've graduated with who I felt were doing harder work than me technically you know the maths and things behind it and they were only earning 13 18 sorry um and that's when I started to understand the salary structures and how it kind of works in the architecture field and realising that hmm, things don't seem to be as fair as they should be. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, the McDonald's worker thing, I read that article and um, <laughs> it, it is quite shocking. Yeah. It, it doesn't get much better after part two, sadly, um, but maybe that's something we can we can talk about. But, you know, can you please... Talk me through your journey through the architectural education system, because I understood that you were working part time. That always really grinds with me, really, in a way, trying to trying to do an architecture degree and working mm. part time. That must affect mm -hmm. your the outcome of your results. It's got to. Yes, definitely. So when I first started uni, I didn't have a job. Unfortunately, my parents, they couldn't really afford to give me that extra £500 a month or £200 a month. So 
when it came time to doing all the printing in the at the end of the first term we did have a pin-up so obviously you had to print out all your boards and they like to see models and I just couldn't I couldn't afford to buy MDF and things like that so I thought you know what I really need to get a job so I started working part-time at H&M and I was doing like eight to 16 hours a week made a huge difference in terms of the extra extra money coming in and obviously, you do get student finance in the UK. I got the full amount. I got the 9,000. But I think the issue is that you get the 9,000 pounds from student finance. But my rent, I was in Birmingham, was 7,000 pounds for the year. So that left me with two grand. 200 pounds per month left for yourself after you pay your rent. When you factor in maybe food, travel maybe just going out with your friends and then buying all the architecture materials 200 pounds didn't really stretch so that is that's why I decided I really need a job and it did put a bit of a strain on me in the course I felt like I was almost working like like I never stopped I had friends that didn't work a lot of, because the course actually had quite a lot of international students and I became friends. Whereas on the weekends, we would walk into town together and they would go, you know, to a restaurant or go and watch a film. I was going to work and it felt like I didn't really have that time to just sit back and just away from architecture and relax in the same way they did because, you know, I had to go work. But I feel blessed because in the third year, um, when it came down to like the nitty gritty we went into COVID and so I was put on furlough. So it meant the last, I think, month of um, architecture school when it was the most intense, I didn't I didn't really need to go into store. So me and my friends, we all just sort of lived together, made a bit of a bubble and we all just worked and a lot of them were on furlough as well. Um, so that worked out well for me. I think if I had to have been working in those final sort of weeks, I think I would have been so burnt out. So it gave me the opportunity to really focus solely on my studies and the final part of the degree um, and I think looking forward now obviously I'm going to finish off the last year of my master's I plan not to work um, and while I've been working this year I've made sure to save a good like pot so that in from September onwards I can really just focus on the degree on the weekends take time just to step back and not and not worry about money and things because I've got my pot there and obviously I'm getting a little bit from student finance so I'm going to be a lot more secure than when I was doing my undergrad study and yet in my undergrad I also I finished with a 2-1 which I was happy with but I would have loved to have gotten a first but I think I think I just wasn't able to dedicate that extra bit of time to really perfect my drawings perfect the narrative in the same way maybe other students who got firsts were because I think it came down to time, but hopefully um, this time when I do my master's, I can I can achieve that. Yeah, just to set you um, maybe at ease. I don't think it's yeah. that much difference whether you get a first or a two one. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it helps you get the next job, but later on in your career, you'll never get it. It'll never get mentioned. <laughs> Please tell me about two types of architecture students. And let me frame this by saying that you presented your crit in your pajamas. Maybe if you can explain this, because I've seen this great TikTok video where you kind of saying, oh, maybe I'll come on to that and tell everyone about this. So I want an exclusive <laughs> architect. I know. I'll actually film that video and I'm going to post it next week. So you're going to get an exclusive. But uh -huh. for that story, um, I was in first year. 
and I had a really bad I had a Google Chrome laptop the Google Chromes back then you couldn't download software onto them they were just like a Google they're like a Google tablet you know just for basic documents so towards the end of first or was it second year I think it was first year they wanted us to print stuff on boards and to print stuff on boards we kind of needed InDesign so the library computers they all had InDesign so me and my friend who also had a really bad laptop we would go into uni and we'd work from maybe 6 p.m till 11 p.m and just do what we needed to do on the library computers because they had the softwares um and it was the day deadline I was working in the library and it got to about 11 p.m. and my friend went home and I said, right, I still need to finish my work. I just come, I just come straight from a shift at H&M as well. So there was even more pressure to get everything finished. So she went home. I was there by myself and I was just working, working, working. It got to about 2 a.m., 3 a.m. I was still there going. And then I realized I had a drawing missing and I thought, right, this is a key flop and I need to get it done. By the time I knew it was about 8 a.m., and I was still in the library and we always go to the library in like pajamas relaxed clothes because it's just a it's just a session of working um obviously this was the day before the deadline so then it came morning and I thought right I've got everything done let me just go and talk to my tutor a bit late for the presentation I'm just going to go home get dressed and then come and present so I went to uni and my tutor was there and she was like you're the first to go you just you just do it just do it. it doesn't matter so presented my work I printed everything out in my pajamas and honestly halfway through my presentation I just had a bit of a breakdown because obviously I hadn't slept I was embarrassed people were confused as to why I was standing there dressed the way I was and I think it all just got a bit much but um I think that really taught me about time management and almost just making sure to take care of me a little bit first because I realized in that moment when the tutor just sent basically sent me into sort of the fire that no one is gonna look out for you the same way you will look out for yourself so if that means that you have to turn up a little bit late but you're you're dressed as you should be you have everything that you need I would say to do that because I feel like sometimes in architecture you really just burn 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 yourself out and then before you know it you're doing your presentation you can't even think properly because you've just not you've just not taken care of yourself so yeah yeah I do think there was a bit of a duty of care on that tutor to to not put you in that position because you wouldn't there was no way in the real world you would present to a client (laughs) in your pajamas I laugh about it now I laugh about it now me and my friends laugh about it but obviously in the moment it was traumatic but um, I feel like sometimes some tutors, they can be a little bit savage and some tutors are maybe a little bit more harsh than other ones. And I think the tutor that I had, he was he was in his late 50s to 60s. And I think he had a very traditional mindset towards architecture. He would rip people apart. So, um, yeah, it was just just one of those situations, really. You've gone through that experience. So what tips would you give to people who are leaving uni right now and what should they include in their portfolio should it be tailored to the practice that you really want to work for in terms of leaving uni I would say just to be super open I think it's easy to have these big dreams and big hopes of the type of practice you want to work for and the incredible stuff you're going to be doing but sometimes it doesn't your plans don't always work out how you imagine them and when the plans don't go to plan it's important to be able to just readjust yourself and take in opportunities that maybe you didn't really want to consider when you first graduated 
for me personally, I got super disappointed when I first graduated because the job that I ended up getting wasn't at the dream practice that I wanted. But looking back, I realised that it gave me a whole new set of skills that I would never have got if I had gone to this dream practice. So I think just being open to being able to pivot and take every experience as a learning experience. And then in terms of what to include in your portfolio, I think I have sort of two approaches to it. In your portfolio, when you're applying for maybe your top 10 dream practices, I would say tailor your portfolio to include work that is familiar to the company you're applying to. For example, um, if you really want to work a maybe big have a look at their style of drawings have a look at the font types they use how they present their visuals and maybe try to take little pieces of that and little elements and include that in your portfolio so that when someone working at big opens up your your portfolio they feel a sense of familiarity and feel like oh she could fit in because there's references to what they do so I would say tailor it in that way but I also think after you've sort of applied to your top 30 practices and you've got you've not gotten anywhere sometimes just sending out um, more generic applications to a bunch of practices can help as well so I would say sort of create a more generic portfolio that includes work that includes maybe residential commercial maybe if you've done a house project in first year include that but then include maybe a theatre project you did in third year or include like a community kitchen design have a little variance of work so that no matter where you send your generic portfolio out to there's a little bit of mixture there so the practice they can see that you you are open to doing different types of architecture and that's the strategy I took when I was sending out my portfolio because I applied to about 10 practices I really wanted to work at and I really tailored my portfolio and CV to almost not replicate what they did but have little influences of what they did and I didn't I didn't succeed with any of them so I thought okay let's be more practical and I just sort of sent out 50 to 60 applications to a random group of local practices and they were more generic but it kind of worked for me a little bit better Um, because I think putting together portfolios and your sort of job application pack can take so long So when you're tailoring every single one, I think sometimes it's almost better just to create something a little bit more like generically appealing and and see what sticks really. And just just to follow up on that one as well, that when do you think is the right time to send out the, you know, the job applications when you're studying? Say you're completing, you know, you usually complete in June, July. It's around June, July time that you finish uni. And I would maybe start sending stuff out if you finish in June I'd say start sending stuff out maybe three weeks after because of course you do need a little bit of time to step back after you've done you know your big degree if you do leave it till late August late July I think it can set you back a bit because a lot of practices they take you on in September um, and they normally start recruiting around July maybe early August time so try and try start preparing your work and I would also say to actually don't be afraid to call practices or maybe go into the office, obviously call ahead and ask if it's OK. Um, but for me, my last two part one job roles came from me having a phone call with the practice. Yeah, I found when I was sending emails, 
um, especially to the bigger practices, they have a very, um, they have a certain way of taking on applicants, especially taking on part ones. You send, you put your work into a certain folder on their website and, you know, you just hope you, you hear back. Whereas sometimes with smaller practices, when you call and have that personal conversation, explain that you are interested in their work, it almost breaks that barrier a little bit. So I would say to students, don't be afraid to call a practice. And if there's a local practice in your area, maybe you can just go in one day with your work and just have a, a generic conversation. It doesn't have to be, I, I'm desperate for a job. It can just be, I want to know a little bit more about what you do. So, yeah. That's great advice. That really is. Um, mm. you know, really appreciate that. So this is a this is something I've asked a number of guests who um, have recently left university on the podcast. Were you taught how to use the software at university? Yes and no. In first year, we were taught software. We were taught we were taught VectorWorks, and I think VectorWorks had sponsored our university, so that was what was being pushed. And I know some smaller residential practices do use VectorWorks, so it was good to learn. And I think it's a it's a it's a decent software for sort of first year, second year students to learn. Um, and then in third year, I wanted to use Rhino because of the type of project I was doing. And so we had a guy at the at BCU who was like, he was almost like the tech coordinator. So you could go to him with tech questions. And he sent me a Rhino course. And that was how I did my final year project, which was really, really useful. And I think my tutor did know how to use Rhino. She helped me out here and there. So I would actually say, yeah, we were. We were taught software. Maybe it wasn't super direct, um, sit down for an hour and here's exactly how you draw a wall or draw a floor plan, but you were given the tools and you kind of had to use those tools to your advantage. But I know I had friends who did engineering and they had a whole module on learning AutoCAD. They had an exam on it actually, and they had to pass the exam to move on to the next stage. And I think that would have been good because that really cements the process of, of do, drawing on software in your mind rather than just trying to figure it out as you go along. But obviously the two the two courses, engineering and architecture, but I think it would have still benefited um, architecture students to know how to use AutoCAD super efficiently. And I'm sure other universities maybe taught it a bit better, but we weren't. Yeah, it, 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 it's a common thing because... Of, uh... Students coming out of architecture school, they, they think the software of choice now seems to be Autodesk's Revit. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder whether any of the tutors at university could mm. use uh, Revit. Um, yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that one, but it seems you've answered um, that question. Yeah. I don't think, especially at my time, Revit wasn't that big. I knew when I did um when I did some work experience, they were using Revit. That was in like my second year. So Revit was being used in the industry. It wasn't really talked about in uni though. I don't know. It was kind of was this weird professional software that had no creative limits. Therefore, it wasn't any benefits for students. I remember that's how my tutor sort of described it. Um, she said, you know, once you start in practice, then you do that boring software stuff. Well, I think it would have been useful because I think it does give you an edge as a graduate. Um, and I think it probably puts you higher up in job applications if you can say that you were experienced at Revit. Um, at my practice, I was taught Revit on the job and I did like a little short course before I started. 
but I think you really want to equip their students to have success in the job market, giving them the tools such as Revit, which is sort of the number one go-to for a lot of practices yeah. nowadays, would definitely help strengthen students in getting jobs. So that would be good. I'm glad your practice uh, helped you and tr- to train mm-hmm. on Revit as well. That's that's mm-hmm. really that's really fantastic. Do you believe that someone with great presentation skills <laughs> is graded higher than someone who can design really well but doesn't really have them I'd say now self-taught skills um yeah 100 percent. I think someone who is able to present their work well will go much further than someone who has that architecture capability but doesn't know how to present their stuff well I think I had friends on the course who kind of had this struggle when they would speak about their ideas and what they wanted to create you could imagine it but then when it came to presentation day Unfortunately, the the presentation boards didn't speak to the passion that they had when they talked about it. I've learned that effective communication is essential, both in practice and university. The ability to be able to sell your designs relies on creating engaging presentations and, and presentations that captivate your viewer. You want your viewer to hang on to every word that you're saying because I would be in presentations with students that not only did their board speak to their project well but the way they talked about their work it made you just want to know more and so I think having strong visuals and having models to back up your story and having a good narrative I think those three things play a crucial role in conveying your design effectively. I think even if you have a fairly basic project if you have a really strong narrative and some amazing visuals that really clearly demonstrate how your building or how the space or architecture will be used. Compared to having a messy presentation that isn't graphically represented well, it doesn't it doesn't sell your skills enough. So I think it's important to strike a balance between different aspects of design. And I think it's important to learn the stuff such as software, proficiency, having learning about rendering and learning about narrative de- development, because I think each element is essential and I think even lacking one can diminish the impact of the overall design presentation like I think you can be you can be amazing at drawing and sketching but if you get to your presentation and you're stuttering and you're really quiet and no one can hear what you're saying you're looking at a great visual but you don't really get how it relates to the project and I think in the same way you can be amazing at talking about a project and conveying your passion but then if you look at the board the floor plan is like this big and there's no visual then it's hard to imagine it so I think yeah working on your visuals working on your narrative having a good model beside you that can you you can pass around I think those three things are really important to nail so that you can you can get graded to the best best of your ability that's great advice and maybe i'd just add to what you mentioned there storytelling storytelling is really important if you do your research on anything even in sales Mm -hmm. if you can tell a good story then you know and and leave people wanting to know more that's the thing secret yeah that's the secret yeah i'm sure for you in real life you know once you get your audience hooked you can almost feed them anything yeah watching your tiktok videos i definitely know you've got a lot of that going on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think super shy as I said with, the, with my you know whole dream to be a singer that I just couldn't when I got in front of people I always froze so in first year you know I just really struggled to talk but I think the great thing about architecture school is that you're forced to always present 
you know, maybe every, at the end of each month, you have to give an update on your project and you're forced to talk about your work in front of maybe 10 to 12 people. And I think, you know, me and my friends all agree, like it grew our confidence massively and it made us more confident graduates when going into the job market because we weren't afraid to talk to people, weren't afraid to call people up because that's how you were almost trained in architecture school. You have your design. So that that's a good, a good, really good point about architecture school, I think. Still staying at university now. We, I'm talking now about students challenging their tutors. You mm. know, I've, I've heard I've heard it said that there's a lot of students of architecture who just essentially say yes, yes, and don't really challenge mm-hmm. the tutors back. Do you see a lot of this? Yeah, I did. I think in first year, second year, especially. I think when you don't when you don't know much about architecture and spaces and how to design a good space and how to design a space that engages people, most very easily convinced to do certain things or you're easily like you know if your tutor has a certain direction that they want your project to be taken in you kind of almost go along with it because you think well they're the experts right and so whenever you would get feedback in tutorials I think especially in first year a lot of us just said yeah we'll we'll make sure to do it but I think when you get to third year and you begin to develop your own stance towards architecture and how you want to design your spaces and how you want your spaces to, to serve people I think you get a lot more confident and I think when you do your research into your project and you've got a strong sort of story that you can tell people it makes you um, open for dialogue with your tutors not saying that you should be at your tutor at every question they give you but you are more confident in having a conversation about why okay why this part of my project does work or why this part of the project does serve the community confident in challenging the answers because you have that knowledge base is a bit greater. Of course, there are some students, I think, who are maybe just a little bit more, uh, a little bit more timid, maybe in and talking back. But even then, I would say like the whole cohort in general, as the years went on, we would have more open dialogues during our presentations and just defend our designs. It just, it just comes with confidence, I think. But don't be, I would say, don't be afraid to do it because it's it's a learning process for you and also for them you know you don't learn if you don't ask questions so I love that don't learn if you don't ask questions yeah okay well you're going back to do your MArch and um, so maybe this is a tricky one to answer but how do you think AI is being used by students currently do you think this will be increasingly being used when you return in September um yes I think so so I've done the first year of my master's um, and that was last year. And I, AI wasn't really a thing. No one really mentioned it. But obviously now that this conversation has been brought up, I can imagine the students that are in uni this year, it's definitely more of a thing that they're experimenting with. I've experimented with it and mid-journey. And I think, you know, it's great for coming up with concept design. And I think it will be used by students in the concept design stages. But I find the thing that it misses is that context part. Like when you go on a site visit, you are able to experience the atmosphere of the place and how people talk about a place. And I think it can be hard to then translate the context of a site into mid-journey into keywords and then expect it to produce a concept design that fits with that well I think AI does help you to produce some amazing images which I'm sure you have seen but in terms of a 
real life project, a real life site, a real life location. I think is I think it misses that part because it is it is just AI software. It's not a human. So it can't it can't tell you about the history of that place. And so yeah, I think also I found me and my friends have found that a lot of the generators that we were using, they now all charge. So I think especially for students, I don't know if students will be able to afford to pay for all of these different AI softwares to help them with their designs um, Designs when you have to pay for every image it pumps out. I think with Midjourney, you get like five free images and you can insert maybe 10 keywords. But after you've downloaded your five images, you have to start paying for every image. Your tutor asks you to provide maybe 10 different concept designs. Are you really going to pay money to get that? I'm not sure. So that's a good point. That's a good point. I think if any student <laughs> out there is considering using Midjourney, I think it's important to say this was created in Midjourney, not yes, yeah, reference. Yeah, definitely. Productivity. Our students at university aren't they all just chatting and not getting any work done? <laughs> in undergrad, yes. In undergrad, yes. Of course, when it got um when it got to like deadline times when it was a week before deadline people be in uni and studio stress i'm sure that was the same people be freaking out but in in like the first maybe three months of uni it is you're just get you're just excited to be there you know you've left home you're in studio you're trying to understand how to draw floor plans and use software so everybody is kind of helping each other and i think there's a really nice community building that you do in those first few months and I have a lot of funny memories from my time in undergrad um, I think as well because you're a little bit younger or a bit more naive so you're just you're just open to being friends with everyone and getting help from everyone and then it's only until you're hit with oh my god it's the week before deadline and I've only I've spent so much time just being in studio and not doing very much work that now I actually need to focus put my earphones in and try to get stuff done found now that I started my master's when I was doing my master's last year there is a bit of a contrast in studio everybody in your master's everybody's coming from different universities and character building and software building so people with a lot more knowledge a lot of them have worked in practice they kind of understand the realities of architecture um so I think the studio is a little bit more quiet a little bit more serious understandably and I don't think at least from my experience at Masters in Manchester, I don't think people are open and as are ready to like share their knowledge and share the tips they found compared to undergrad because they've already kind of mastered that. You know, most people at Masters level, they know how to draw, they know how to use software, they know how to render, so they can just get on with it. Whereas at undergrad, you're constantly sharing information because you're all kind of learning at the same time. At undergrad, people are very chatty. It's quite a fun studio environment. Um, I would say at master's level, people are a little bit more serious. They understand that if you want to get your part two done, you kind of have to just sit there and get it done. And I think I think when you've worked and when you've been in the real life environment of practice life, it does kind of change you. It matures you, you know, um, and I think you take that maturity into your education, which is fair enough. So, yeah. No, wonderful. And talked about how how difficult it was to get that first job after you sort of qualified your degree mm. you seem you seem to have had a positive experience in your year out firstly you know can you tell me about the best things uh, you know about leaving university and going into work 
Yes. I think being able to work in a practical context um, has been a really nice change to university. University, you create a lot of designs that you are aware are a little bit more extreme. Um, Budget-wise, they probably aren't possible. So then going into practice and seeing how they manage budgets and how much they can get, how much you can get for your money in terms of architecture is really interesting that more universities pushed that sort of maybe one month out or one week out into practice so that students were more aware of what the realities of being in practice is like because I know for a lot of people when they go into practice they realize that it's a bit too much in the real world it's a bit too practical and that can be quite boring compared to the crazy stuff you're doing at uni um, and that can cause to run away from it um, but i I found that contrast. I quite enjoyed that. I enjoyed being able to begin to draw things and then going on site visits and seeing how they've begun to do the layouts and and pump concrete and things like that. So for me, seeing stuff built practically was really positive. And of course, being around seniors, being around people that know so much more than you is really good because you know if you develop good relationships with these people they can turn into mentors and they can really help you throughout your journey and they can give you tips on what not to do in your part two and what to do in your part two and that sort of mentorship is something that I really valued um, in practice and also the money because at uni at uni I I was broke I hadn't I I mean I had part-time salary but you know H&M money is retail so it's not very much whereas when you're on like a I mean, I know it's low, but for me, like £19,000, even though it is low, like there's more money than I've ever earned. So being able to earn that consistent, larger amount of money is nice. You know, being able to work and earn money is a nice feeling. So yeah, the money is part as well. Yeah. And you can also switch off at five. You don't have to like mm. all night as, you know, I, I hope so anyway. <laughs> the next one, you know, we said about the positive side of working. Yeah. Can you tell me about the struggles you've had whilst working in practice? And I think you've covered a lot of this on your on your TikTok mm. videos. But yeah, please share it with please share the negatives with uh, our listeners. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for me was a change in pace, transitioning from university to put to a professional practice. In university, deadlines. Um, there's some flexible. If you don't have your floor plan finished for the presentation. You can always maybe go back in summer or whatever and fix it up. But in practice, if the deadline is Monday, you can't say it can't be your senior. Oh, I've not finished that floor plan, but give me another day and I'll get it done. If we're meant to send out the drawing pack on Monday, everything needs to be done till Monday. So I think time and making sure to get things done on time was quite a big struggle for me. I guess it's all about deliverables and making sure your deliverables are completed amount of time but in a in a in a good quality as well actually I'll share this with you very very recently to your Monday the practice that I'm working at actually let me go because they said to me that um, I was not progressing as quickly as they wanted me to progress obviously I'm going back to uni in September so you know I'm not too worried about it but I think it just while even though in December um, I had a check-in review and they said it was going really well I think it's important for uni students just to be aware that once you get into practice, deadlines are really, really real. 
and you have to I think practice in uni making sure to have everything completed to a certain time because in practice you don't have that luxury and Mm. for me in practice I felt like I was working to death in the beginning I'll be honest I wasn't you know things would take longer than expected just because I was learning Revit and I was learning how to draw professionally um but I felt like as I as I was getting on I was becoming much quicker but the practice I was at you know they're a medium size they do a lot of work with councils so I realized that their their fee percentages were quite low in comparison to where I'd worked previously and I think because their fee percentages were lower they had to produce a lot of work within a short turnaround time that I think that was just the business model and so if you could not produce you know three drawing packs by the end of the week you know you kind of had to to be gone because you had to keep up with the pace um whereas in my practice before this one I think because the fee percentages were a lot high a lot higher we you could afford to really take a bit more time to make sure that the drawing pack was perfect and yeah I just think it's important for uni students to know to manage their time really really well because there will be pressure on you in practice to deliver on time and you have to make sure that you meet that you can't slow a project down now I'm glad you talked about the that that sort of sense that you understood about fees and and that's something I think part one students should consider when they're going into a practice you know look at the clients Mm, and the client local authority housing the chances are the fees won't be that high therefore you're going to be you're going to be under a lot of pressure I just wanted to say I think it's I don't know obviously you have more experience than me but where I was working before my career place they did a lot of private residential for private clients whereas where I was just recently because it was public sector um the fee percentages were very different so I don't know if it's maybe the norm that certain industries as an architect you can charge higher than others but maybe that's why you know there is there is this weird sort of competition for work and things like that yeah I think there's a lot of competition because a lot of architects do housing Mm. housing so there's huge competition so they may have Mm. gone in with a a low fee bid to get Mm. the work I Um, think so that's that's potential (laughs) just if you ever want to go to a practice that pays a lot just look at (laughs) and if they do data centers Big, big sheds you know big mm-hmm. I know you probably won't like to hear this but these big sheds or infrastructure projects that they're they're the ones that will pay the most I can guarantee that one good to know but let's let's go to the fun side to TikTok why, <laughs> you know why did you set up this channel and would you describe the type of videos you post to the listeners you know describe them please so yeah. they can all follow you well, I want to say I love your TikTok. I really like seeing how you convert quite serious topics on the podcast into engaging videos. And, you know, I've reposted them and sent them to a lot of my friends and they've also started listening to the podcast. So, yeah, shout out to your TikTok. Right. Um, mine, I want to create a TikTok to help inform and educate students about the realities of studying architecture, similar to what you do on your podcast, but in short form recognized my own naivety about the length of the architecture course and the expenses associated with it and I want other students to not fall into that trap I want students to know about the salary prospects compared to other graduate positions and my aim was to just provide students with a good amount of information to keep them informed 
before starting the course I think in most things you just have to be informed you know so long as you are aware of the positives and negatives you are able to make an informed decision about whether it's for you or not and I think when you don't have all the information that you need it can make it a little bit hard of course on the university websites it does list the modules and the course fees but obviously they're not going to say when you graduate you're going to earn 18k a year not going to advertise that so I thought it would be good just to just to highlight that and I think also I wanted to share the financial pressures I faced especially coming from my to other students that are people of colour because I think especially from my background growing up there is kind of a thing where you have to help your family practically so when I started my first part-time role I was still helping and supporting my family because I've got younger siblings and so that was an added pressure students to know that you know if that's your situation and you're going to study architecture maybe go in with that awareness and go in knowing okay I might have to supplement my student finance income because things are going to get quite tight yeah, and I've just, you know, been telling students how to plan and how to save for the course, you know, ways to secure part-time work and also talk, I'm planning to talk about additional funding opportunities for students and students in general, because, you know, I didn't really know about bursaries and things like that, but they are those things there in place for students. And if you are struggling at university, there are people you can talk to and people that can give you some more financial aid. Overall, I'd say my videos are like talking to your friend who's gone to university and got a graduate job and you just want to know like how can I do it too and I also like doing like more think pieces and more not documentary style content but more speaker content about interior design product design and trending events both in architecture and in the sort of design world like a, a mini disease magazine but in person <laughs> <laughs> which is the uh, most popular video is as a whole the videos are really good to watch if you're considering studying architecture because it takes you through the whole lifestyle of an experience of a part one student mm. where I do it in a really sort of fun way but like a real way that's what I like Thank it you. Like the yeah real, the real this is the real deal kind of thing yeah I didn't when I was going you know I didn't really see see that there were youtube channels that talked about architecture but they often were architects and they'd been practicing for a while i know now there's a lot of like you know social media in, like architecture influencers who are talking about the realities of the profession which is great um, and i think with the development of social media so i think that makes it even better to to help inspire and educate other potential students that might be going onto the degree the most popular one that's got like twenty thousand views is actually on brutalist architecture and it's like if people were saying like oh i didn't even i always liked to look at these buildings but i didn't understand what it was and i think if you're outside of architecture you see these heavy concrete blocks and you don't know exactly what it's called but some you like something about it so yeah that's my most popular one and then second to that would be how to how to become an architect even when i was going into my undergrad I didn't know it was seven years I knew it was a bit longer than the three but I didn't know it was seven and I think a lot of me and my friends we don't really realize till maybe second year that wait a minute this is actually seven years and I think if we knew we would have it's just about being informed isn't it I think if we knew maybe we would have thought twice yeah that's why I'm here really to inform everyone <laughs> oh that's great that's great and then you know, what do you want from your career in architecture and what money do you think you'll be earning 
in 15 years time? Which is, I think is a nice question to ask. Yeah, um, it's a really nice question. It's always nice to speak about your aspirations and things. I think for me, I'm still very open. I know my ultimate, ultimate goal is to build like a new generation of orphanages in Ghana, because that's where my family's from. I think there's some amazing communities and some amazing work happening in developing countries about how to provide more sustainable forms of accommodation for people that don't have the luxuries of relying on like um, a state. You know, like in the UK, we are fortunate enough that we have the NHS or if we get stuck, we can go to the council and apply for some sort of housing or benefits. But in a lot of the developing countries, their government doesn't have that really high quality sort of residential accommodation for young children that don't have the best start in life. Obviously, to get to that point, I am very open to working in multidisciplinary practices and really soaking all the information I can to be able to take that over there. I've only been two, I've only worked in practice for two years. So I'm quite open to working in, you know, big practices and doing, you know, larger schemes, sort of airports and hotels, restaurants. But I'm also naturally interested in the sort of community-based architecture and designing. Um, And I think there's opportunity to work in both spaces. And I think also being a young architecture student, as I was saying before, you can kind of get fixated on working at certain practices, maybe because of the name that they have or the um, what's associated with their buildings and things. But I think being open to experiences can almost be more beneficial. I think sometimes when you are too focused on just one, one practice that you want to work at, it can almost lead to more disappointment. Whereas if you do have a goal, you know, definitely keep that goal in mind, but there'll be different routes to get there. And that's kind of my, my my career. But I think ultimately my dream is to be an architect. I really want to design spaces. I want to design buildings. And um, I'm not sure exactly what form that will turn into, but yeah. And you said in terms of... Is it yeah, so, so, so imagine you qualify in the mm. next couple of years, yeah, as an architect, and then 15, why, go forward 15 years, what sort of salary do you think that you will be earning? Yeah. I'm 23 now, 33. I'd be like almost 40 then, I think. I would, uh, it's really hard, honestly. I would like to be, I would like, okay, I would like to be on 80k a year. I would like maybe even push into 100 because I, where I worked previously, I was very close with the director um, and she owned the business. It was a woman. And she said, if you really want to succeed in architecture, you have to start something yourself and work in a niche. That was her advice. If that means I have to set up on my own, obviously get loads of experience, set up on my own and maybe work in some sort of niche, then that would, that would be great. But I, I don't know how likely it is to be earning 100k at 40 working for somebody else I don't know obviously there's niches maybe you can tell me I'm sure there's niches in architecture where you can earn a lot of money but yeah maybe so yeah for me maybe 70 to 80 thousand pounds a year would be good but 100k would be the dream (laughs) I mean, working working with the big consultancies, engineer engineering consultancies, is something that many young architects don't consider, and mm. uh, they can be they they can be very good in terms of salary because they've okay. got structures in place, mm-hmm. and, they, and they're often their salaries are tied to the same 
level as a mechanical engineer, which pro they probably oh, get okay. I didn't know that. So, so you're graded in a, in a structured mm -hmm. way. Um, that that's that's something I've I've seen the well the the most pay in 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 okay. nuclear or um big infrastructure engineering offices, and they all they always have architects. You see, mm. but just people don't don't really see that side of things as quite sexy. Let's be honest. That's the thing. I think architects people are beautiful things. And sometimes when we think of like engineering practices, a lot of the time the stereotype is that it's just, you know, steel, boring steel structures. But ultimately they probably have the best processes in place yeah. um, to get you the best pay. So have you got any advice for a work-life balance? And what do you do to de-stress? Two main things for me. I really love being in nature and I really love exercise Netflix and stuff is great but I don't think it really adds that much value to your life personally so when I'm stressed in the office or after a really long day I like to just there's a park near my house I'm sure there's a park near most people's and I just like to go on maybe a 30 minute walk I go in normally super frazzled and stressed from the day by the time I come out I'm so much more relaxed because just having time to be in your own thoughts and being, you know, close to nature for me just is a de-stressor. Exercise for me is really good. Um, spin class is one of my favourite things to do. I feel like if you can get through a good workout, then it gives you the motivation to make a good drawing pack out or just attack attack the things that you have to do in work that day much better. Yoga is also something I like doing. I like doing classes. And yeah, I just like going on walks and also baking baking yeah so when I first finished uni obviously we we're in COVID and I was unemployed for about three months so I was living with my friend in Birmingham at the time and we just started baking every day like lemon cakes cookies almond cakes and so I kind of carried that with me and I do I bake for like um different clients of architecture um I guess in that sense having your own personal hobby that is away from architecture you know, even if that's drawing or swimming or something, I think having something that you don't necessarily need to profit from, but just something that you enjoy doing can can provide a good a good work life balance. What is it for you? Can I ask? Is it the podcast? But that's still kind of work. <laughs> it is. It is the podcast. And I agree. So during my working day, I go on walks. Um, every lunchtime I'm lucky I'm working on a science park and we've got beautiful nature with a, a beautiful office that was designed in the 80s um, nice good practice uh d-e-g-w um okay. there were famous for office designs and the, I don't think they no longer exist I think they were swallowed up by ACOM <laughs> oh yeah they're known <laughs> yeah. so um yeah that that is probably the main thing and uh, I must admit I do like a glass of wine <laughs> why not why not just interested in your thoughts without naming any names there was a big thing that happened over the last couple of weeks mm. and you've all, you've done a TikTok video about this so it's um mm. it's not like you haven't been public about it but what are your thoughts on the toxic environment that um, exists in some of the star architects practices? Yeah, I think it's good that it's been brought to light. I think it's always good for both practicing architects and students to see the picture perfect. And there aren't just these beautiful shiny buildings that appear. There is almost a little bit of a dark nature behind it. 
unfortunately, and I'm sure it exists in every profession. But I think it's an important reminder to everybody that certain behaviours just aren't acceptable. Yeah, you may be in an amazing practice and the work they produce is great. and They make loads of money. But at the end of the day, you are a person and you are a human. So if if you're in a practice and you aren't being treated fairly or you feel like you are being made to stay, you know, till 12 a.m. at night to get something done, just remember that you like you are your own person and you do have the option to say no and you do have the option to leave as scary as that is I think for a lot of graduates getting into the industry we're almost just grateful to be there but I think the topic did highlight that it's important to be aware of the realities of practice and be aware of when a situation isn't healthy or you don't feel safe um, in certain environments say something and you know try to make it aware to someone that you feel safe to in the practice it's really sad but you know I've been in situations and I've had friends in situations where they've been made to feel really uncomfortable in practice for a multitude of reasons and you you know you kind of just keep quiet and keep it to yourself so I think it's good to be able to have the confidence and seeing examples like this gives younger architects and I'm sure more experienced ones confidence to speak up and say what you did there wasn't right or I don't think this is how we should be treated. So it is un- it's an unfortunate situation, but um, yeah, I think the realities of the profession need to be highlighted again and again and again. And I don't know if I don't know if there's a huge solution to it because you know these renowned practices they're recognised for their great architecture um, and it's come with sweat and, and tears. So it's um it's a bit of a toxic cycle almost but i think i think it being exposed in the media can help discussions with discussion comes change so i do hope that's something that that comes out of it no i really appreciate you answering that uh, difficult question that i um we hadn't read so thank you so much for being on the broke architect podcast and on the second series it was wonderful please share subscribe and comment to support the channel. The Architect.